a big thinker gives us a future look into the G Mafia and AI paper cuts. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Amy Webb, quantitative futurist and author, professor of strategic foresight at NYU Stern School of Business, and the founder of the Future Today Institute. Welcome, Amy. Hey, Tanya. How are you? Very good. Thanks for joining us again. Um, always a, a pleasure to have you back. Remind us, though, what the Future Today Institute does. Sure. So we're a research, independent uh, research organization that's been around for the past 15 years. Um, we use data to model out plausible futures and track tech trends early on. Uh, and we do that for Fortune 100 companies, federal government agencies, um, private equity groups uh, all around the world. You just authored a new book. We have your previous book on our set, actually. Great work. Your new book is equally as good um, and very enticing. The Big Nine, How Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Who, who are the Big Nine and what motivated you to write about them? So there are nine companies that overwhelmingly have all of the patents. They are well capitalized. They have custom silicon. They've got their own frameworks, their own chipsets. They're able to attract the top talent, and they have partnerships with the world's greatest research institutions. And it is these nine companies that I believe are building out the entire future of, of our AI ecosystem. Three are based in China. Six are in the United States. The Chinese companies are collectively referred to as the BAT. That's Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And if you haven't heard of those companies before, don't worry. Most people outside of China have never heard of them before. Um, and if you're more tech savvy and you have heard about them but haven't yet encountered them, uh, you may be able to do that soon because they're launching partnerships outside of China now uh, all around the world. So that's China. Um, in the United States, the remaining six companies I call the G-Mafia. Those are Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, and Apple. It doesn't mean that, you know, Salesforce or Huawei uh, or many, many other companies aren't also doing tremendous work, um, but their work is somewhat more narrow. So if we were to look at the overall gravitational pull um, for what is effectively the third era of computing, you know, these are the nine companies to be watching. You structured the book in three sections. How does it flow? So you'd ask me, and I, I realized I didn't answer, uh, why, why did I, why this book, why these companies? Um, you know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, my observation in working with the leaders of many large prominent organizations over the past decade is that there's a tremendous amount of misplaced optimism and fear. People just don't, they, they sort of like get that they should be paying attention to AI, but they don't quite grok what AI is. Um, and the challenge there is that uh, decisions are being made about which clouds to use, for example, um, you know, and which uh, data scientists to hire if, you know, and, and to hire them at all, um, you know, how to write policy. These decisions are being made by people who I don't think have a, a, firm, enough, a firm enough grasp on what AI is right now and what its real implications and potentials are. So that was the sort of genesis um, for me writing this book. I wanted to give people a better sense of what the landscape looks like. However, I also wanted them to understand the downstream implications. So part one of this book is really just 
you know, here's what you, it's the here's what you missed on Glee version of AI. Um, so there's a history that traces the origins of AI back over a thousand years um, to the present day. Uh, there's a chapter on, you know, what it means that our human DNA is inside of machines that make decisions. So it really gives you a lay of the land and a, and a rich and detailed history of how we got to now. The second part of the book are scenarios. Now, my job is to, as a futurist, is not to make predictions, it's to make connections, and scenario modeling is one part of my job. So I, I wrote three chapters. One is an optimistic framing, which does not mean utopia. It just means, you know, given what we knew to be true at this moment in time, we made the best possible decisions that we could. Therefore, we have the best chances going forward. So it's an optimistic uh, chapter. A, a sort of neutral or pragmatic chapter and a catastrophic chapter that describes the next 50 years as AI um, unfurls with these nine companies, which are driven by different motivations. In China, it's government-based. In the United States, it's our free, free market economy. Um, what happens over the next couple of decades uh, as a result? And the, sorry, the third part of the book is uh, solutions. So the catastrophic chapter ends very badly. Uh, and the, the third part of the book is how every single person alive today can change the developmental track. And there are lots of things that we can all do to ensure that that optimistic scenario happens. Let's, let's talk about those next 50 years. You make some very specific predictions going out years into the future. What in your research gives you the confidence to make those kinds of predictions? Yeah, so again, I, I wouldn't call them predictions. I would call them, um, you know, a, a prediction would imply that I have all the data necessary and that I can build the mathematic, the like statistical models to evaluate. And I, I can't, humans are capricious. We change our minds all the time. We're really annoying in that way. Um, so, but, but these scenarios are not fiction. They read a little bit like speculative fiction, but they are all very much rooted in fact and data and evidence. So, you know, for the past decade or so, I've been, you know, meeting with um, researchers, um, in some cases working with those researchers. Uh, I've been building my own models. I've been evaluating other people's, um, you know, different types of models for learning and generative language and you name it. Um, I've been looking at patents, you know, all of the, you know, I, I was, I was a journalist before I was a futurist. And so in many ways, I just use the same reporting skills in a much more supercharged data-driven way, um, to, to do all of that reporting on where we are right now. And the methodology that I use at work is what I used to model out what those future scenarios look like. One of your trademarks as a futurist is to continually scan the fringes for signals larger trends, if you will. Tell us about paper cuts and AI and how these may be examples of fringe situations becoming important signals. Yeah, so, you know, I think when, when people, we, we've been living with the idea of AI for so long that I think a lot of people now are sort of looking out at the horizon expecting a walking, talking robot or a walking, talking robot that's gonna come and murder us in our sleep. Um, and, and as a result of that, we have a lot of cognitive biases that are preventing us from seeing all of the action that's happening in the present. So, you know, we have, uh, for very good reasons, 
we have a lot of image rec recognition technology that surrounds us in our everyday lives. Um, you know, cameras that authenticate you as you move through places like the airport. In order for those systems to work, somebody has to build it, um, the, the software. Somebody has to make a determination as to which data to use, which images to use to train that system, and then somebody has to build the container for it. And one of the problems is that, you know, there's a relatively few number of people working in this field. They, they're pretty homogenous, and they don't typically think about broader implications or sort of, you know, they're subject to the same cognitive biases that everybody else is. So what that means is that if you're a person of color, um, or in my case, you know, a woman with very thick curly hair, and you try to go through that scatter ray machine at an airport, you're going to register as an anomaly. Um, so I, you know, and I'm somebody who's on a plane usually two to four times a week, and I've got all the special clearances and everything. On the occasion that I have to go through that other kind of, you know, non-TSA pre-line, I, I get pulled over more than the average person. I get pulled out of line and searched. And it's simply because I have um, enormous hair, uh, and I also have some metal in my body from previous accidents, um, you know, and I'm subjected to, again, because just somebody didn't think this through. This is not a national security crisis. You know, it's not going to cripple our financial markets, but it's an example of what I like to call a paper cut. You get one or two paper cuts, life goes, it's annoying, you know, it's a little painful, but life goes on. If your entire body is covered in paper cuts head to toe, you are technically still alive, but you are living a very, very different type of life than you did before. You are much more restricted in what you can do. You have far fewer choices in how you, you go about your day. And, you know, you're kind of miserable. Um, and my concern with how some of our commercial products are starting to roll out is that, you know, that they are not taking everybody into consideration. In, in a lot of ways, they're reducing choice. Um, and they are taking away some of the controls that, that we've had in the past. Um, and I, again, I just, I don't know that anybody has thought through all of this and modeled out the downstream negative impl implications. The book offers a clear warning about ignorance and indifference of AI in the U.S., while China uses it as a foundation for their 21st century strategy. Give us a peek into the story you tell there. Well, so in the United States, um, you know, we have publicly traded companies that have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders who are doing great things, by the way. Um, you know, and in our free market economy, um, there's been very little oversight um, and, and really interest in how our big tech companies have developed. And that is why you are starting to now hear, because we're in an election cycle, you're starting to hear calls for breaking up these companies or like the heavy hand of regulation, you know, slamming these companies. And these are short, you know, these are sort of politically popular, uh, and they get people all riled up, but they're totally impractical, and they are, um, they're going to feel like short-term wins, and they're going to wind up becoming longer-term liabilities. Uh, the Amazon Web Services is the backbone upon which our government operates, for one thing. Um, you know, we just don't have the kind of federal funding that we may have had in the past uh, that is 
dumping huge amounts of money into research and development on advanced, you know, systems that are not related to the military. I mean, we've kind of regulated, we've relegated a lot of this to to big tech in this country. Um, I think at this point, rather than uh, chastising these companies, and I'm not saying that they're totally innocent and every, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just being a pragmatist here. Um, what we need to do is figure out a way to incentivize them to collaborate uh, because at best there's been a transactional relationship between the Valley and the Pacific Northwest and DC, um, you know, and our lawmakers and, uh, and the street. So there's this sort of three capital situation in the United States. Everybody thinks that they have the most power. And in reality, they're in a horrifically bad codependent relationship with each other. It's, it's a bad situation. Uh, in China, on the other hand, you've got uh, you know three very big important companies that are domiciled in China um, that, by virtue of the fact that they are Chinese companies, have to follow certain government and cultural rules, norms, and standards. Uh, and if they don't, they get penalized or they can't operate, they can't do their business, which means that AI in China is very much being dictated by President Xi Jinping and his, in his um, cabinet. And these are smart people. These are smart people who are able to take a much longer term outlook and who, by the way, uh, some, there were some rule changes. So President Xi is now effectively president for the rest of his life, which allows them to do some longer term planning and to tie in some of this technology with their other political initiatives. So there's something called the, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is an infrastructure plan that is much more about longer-term economic development uh, and, and currently has several you know, dozen pilot countries signed up. So they're not just, you know, China's not just in these countries building bridges and you know, swapping for debt that's never going to be repaid. They're also laying fiber and 5G and deploying um, social tracking systems, you know, and, and China's in the process of building a new world order, uh, one in which it is going to be able to compete uh, with the rest of the world because it's going to have scale. I mean, I, I just don't think we've thought this through. Um, and, and what really bothers me is that rather than waking up to what's happening and recognizing China as a militaristic, economic, and diplomatic pacing threat. Instead, we've all decided that we need to break up the, the big tech companies. Like that's today's, you know, that, that's our Don Quixote chapter for the day. And then tomorrow we'll get upset about something else and, you know, life will go on. Uh, we're squandering time and resources and opportunity to collaborate in a way where everybody can win and in a way that shifts our future into more of that optimistic framing. Wow, deep thoughts. Amy Webb, quantitative futurist, professor of strategic foresight at the NYU Stern School of Business and founder of the Future Today Institute. Great work again, Amy. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they wanna get a copy of this book, how can they do that? Sure. Actually, I have a copy. The, co the cover is really pretty. I did not design it. Uh, but uh, this is sold, the book is sold uh, all over um, North America. It's, avail it's going to be uh, launching in, I think, we're up to 16 different languages and international editions around the world. So it's easy to find in bookstores or online. And um, I'm pretty easy to, 
to reach, you can find me at, at Amy Webb on Twitter. AmyWebb.io is my personal website. And the futuretodayinstitute.com is just futuretodayinstitute.com. And we've got a ton of free resources and our annual report, things like that. Absolutely. Thanks again, Amy. And if you guys want to find me, you can do so at tanyahall.net. I've got links to all my social sites. Thanks for watching.